Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. That's michael at C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. At times, even sometimes in my more sober moments, it seems to me that nothing is right. Man is not right, nor is he righteous. Wrong, not right, seems to reign on this earth. Righteousness I should say, unrighteousness is rampant in our country. I think if you start to think about all of that, especially as a Christian, you will eventually come down to asking the question like, is God really righteous? Is it possible for God, for example, to deal with man in a righteous way and man still survive? Is it possible in such a wicked society, in an unrighteous day, for God to produce righteousness in men? Could he produce it in a group? Can he produce it in society at large? Now actually those are pretty heavy questions. Those are pretty heavy philosophical kinds of questions. They deal with the ultimate issues of righteousness among men and righteousness with God. One book in the Bible was written to address the subject of righteousness. That book is the book of Romans. And all the books of the Bible that I have studied thus far, I would have to say that the book of Romans is the deepest And I mean by that, that the argument, the development of the thought is very tightly woven. There are no dramatic stories in Romans, though the book itself is very dramatic. There is logic, cold logic. There are heavy philosophical questions like the righteousness of God and the election of God and heavy things like predestination. But ultimately, it is this book that answers those questions I posed a moment ago. When you look at the world at large and conclude that man is not right, nor is he righteous, and you begin to even ask, is God righteous? To answer those questions, I would invite your attention to the book of Romans. Not a single passion passage in it, the whole thing. What we've done now for some time is go through this book paragraph by paragraph and verse by verse. What I propose to do today is go through the whole thing in one message. I want us to look at the whole book of Romans. You need to begin by just noting that the subject of this book is righteousness. The structure of the book, the way that subject is developed, really begins by following the format of an ancient letter. 
As I have told you before, and no doubt will tell you again as we look at other letters in the New Testament, an ancient letter began with a salutation, and thus so does the book of Romans. As a matter of fact, in this book, the salutation covers the first seven verses. Then there follows a thanksgiving and a prayer. In this case, that encompasses verses 8 through 17 of the first chapter. Matter of fact, let's pause for a second, and will you turn with me to Romans chapter 1, and let's look at the end of that prayer that Paul prays. He really prays that he would come to be able to come to Rome and uh, have some fruit among them. And then in verse 16, he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. For everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Many, I dare say most, have suggested that Romans 1.17, the end of that prayer he prays actually, is the beginning of the book. It is the theme introduced for the whole book of Romans. It is the righteousness of God. The subject of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God. And as he explains in this verse, it is from faith to faith. It is that little phrase that will be unfolded as you move through this book. Now, the book itself, after the salutation, after the thanksgiving, after the prayer, the book itself begins in chapter 1, verse 18. And as you can quickly see, this book has 16 chapters. Let's see, if it took five minutes per chapter, <clears throat> we could be here quite a while. That's not going to work, I can see. So I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to summarize the body of this book in five points. All of these deal with righteousness. The first thing Paul does in Romans is tell us that righteousness is needed. That begins at 118 and goes through 320. Righteousness is needed is the point from 118 to chapter 3, verse 20. Now, obviously, that huge portion of Scripture is broken up into some subsections. He actually begins by talking about the fact that Gentiles are under condemnation. That's his point from 118 to the end of the chapter. He begins in verse 18 by saying, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Notice he begins by talking about the fact that men are unrighteous. He was in the city of Corinth when he wrote this book, the sin city of the ancient world. It was a port city. People drifted through there and every kind of vice and crime was going on. Some have suggested that what follows in Romans chapter 1 is probably a description of many of the sins and vices that he saw in the city of Corinth. 
Be all that as it may, the point he's making, as revealed by the statements he writes, is that the wrath of God is on all of this unrighteousness. That men have rejected the revelation of God in creation, and consequently, the wrath of God rests upon them. His real point is that God has given them over to their sin. Because they have rejected him and turned from him and turned into sin, God has turned man over to his sin. Another way to say that same thing and another way to summarize Romans 1.18 through 32 is the wages of sin is sin. That is what you get for sinning is more sin. The point Paul is making in this passage is they wanted to sin, so God turned them over to their sin, and he just let them get worse and worse. And consequently, his judgment and his wrath rest upon mankind, the Gentiles. Beginning in chapter 2, however, he is making the point that not only are Gentiles, but also the Jews are under condemnation. And that extends from 2.1 all the way to 3.8. In this portion, he talks about the fact that there is a man who is moral and self-righteous. And it becomes clear by the time he gets to verse 16 of the second chapter that he's talking about the Jew. The man who judges others because he thinks he is righteous. It is the religious Jew of Paul's day. Well, Paul says in these first 16 verses, he too will be judged. And he begins to spell out the principles of judgment. Men will be judged according to reality, according to their works, and according to the light that they have. And all men have some light. Now the Jew objects to all of this because he thinks he has a superior position being a religious Jew and having the Old Testament scriptures. So in the latter part of chapter 2, Paul assures him in verses 17 to 29 that just because he is of the Jewish race and has the Old Testament rituals, he has no advantage before God. And then in chapter 3, those first eight verses, he says, oh yes, you do have an advantage. It is the fact that you have the word of God, but you will be judged nonetheless. So from 2.1 to 3.8, he is pronouncing the Old Testament religious Jews under condemnation. And then he reaches his conclusion of this first section. In chapter 3, verses 9 to 20, his conclusion is that all are under sin. All have sinned, is the famous verse of chapter 3, and come short of the glory of God. The scripture, he says, has concluded that all are under sin, and so man stands silent before God. Not even the works of the law of the Old Testament will justify him before God. So the first point Paul makes in the book of Romans is that righteousness is needed. And it is needed because the Gentiles are under condemnation. 
the Jews are under condemnation, yea, all mankind is under condemnation. Let me illustrate. I said earlier that um, there were no stories in this book, but it was dramatic. <laughs> Let me tell you, this may just be the most dramatic thing in all the Bible. I'm going to illustrate this by suggesting that the scene of this drama, scene one, is the courtroom. That there is a judge behind the bench. The judge is God. There is a prosecuting attorney, my favorite television program of all times, is Perry Mason. In this case, it's the Apostle Paul. And there are two defendants. Notice them sitting there. One is a Jew, and the other is a Gentile. Now, what's going on in the book of Romans is the prosecuting attorney, Paul Perry Mason, <laughs> is saying before the judge, they're all guilty. They are all unrighteous. None seek after God. And the Jew objects. And he says, I'm not guilty. And the apostle Paul with fire in his eyes says, oh, yes, you are. You judge everybody else. You look down your nose at others. But you who judge others, you will be judged by the same judgment you meet out to other people. He gets down to the end of his deliberation. He summarizes his case before the judge and he pronounces the whole world guilty before God. Curtain closes. That's scene one. Let's go to the next major point in the book of Romans. It begins in chapter 3, verse 21. This is a short little episode. It only goes down to chapter 4, verse 25. In this portion of the book of Romans, Paul explains that justification is by faith. Matter of fact, this portion could be divided into two parts. In what's left of chapter 3, he tells us that justification by faith is explained. And in all of chapter 4, you could in essence call that justification by faith is proven. His point is this. Here's God's problem. How is he going to take an unrighteous man and make him righteous and be righteous himself for doing it? That's the problem. Because he is unrighteous. That man is unrighteous. So how could God possibly make him righteous and still be righteous to do it? So what he says in Romans chapter 3 is simply this. This is one of the deepest, clearest, most profound passages in all of the Bible. It is by far and away one of the best to explain the gospel of the grace of God. Look with me at Romans chapter 3, verse 22. Even the righteousness of God, that's the subject of the book of Romans, which is through faith 
in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God set forth to be the propitiation by his blood through faith. To demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Would you please underline that? It is critical to understanding the book of Romans. God is just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. How can that be? And the answer is explained in verse 25. Because Jesus Christ, God's Son, dies on the cross to pay for our sin. And the moment we trust in Jesus Christ, God declares us righteous. And he can do that and still be righteous because Jesus Christ died and paid for all our sin. That's Romans. That's the gospel. That's incredible. So Romans chapter 3 concludes that God is righteous in declaring men righteous. That the law is established in God declaring men righteous. And that boasting is excluded in God declaring men righteous because God declares men righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. Now he demonstrates in chapter 4 that this is proven by the Old Testament. And his outstanding example of justification by faith is none other than the patriarch Abraham. So the second major movement in the book of Romans is that righteousness is imputed. The first was righteousness was needed. That was 118 all the way down to 320. From 321 to 425, the point in Romans is that righteousness is imputed. I say it is profound, and it is, but it's also simple and sublime. It all boils down to this. I am a sinner. I am found guilty before God. Jesus Christ, God's Son, died in my place to pay for my sins, satisfied the demand of God that sin be paid for. That's propitiation. And when I trust in Jesus Christ, God declares me righteous. And he's righteous in doing that because sin did get paid for. He didn't just wink at it. So God is just and the justifier of those who trust Jesus Christ. Well, let me illustrate. Let's go back to the courtroom. Remember who's sitting on the bench? God. Remember who is the prosecuting attorney? Paul Perry Mason. Remember who's on trial? A Gentile and a Jew. 
you are either one or the other. You understand what I'm saying? You are on trial, my friend, and so am I. Now Paul presents his case and he finds these two defendants guilty. And he looks at the judge and the judge looks over the evidence and has to conclude they're guilty. You know what that means? That means you're guilty. That means you're guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty. I'm guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty. We're all standing there. Guilty, right? How are we going to get out of this? There's a very dramatic development. Always why I like Perry Mason. <laughs> I mean, he always pulled the rabbit out of the hat, right? I mean, at the most dramatic moment, just when it looked like it was over for his client, he was going to be found guilty for sure. And it was always a murder case. You know, he was always going to be electrocuted. Back in those days, they had capital punishment, and it was for sure. So you knew if he lost the case, the guy was going to get the gas chamber, the electric chair or something, right? And right at the last minute, Perry would pull out some dramatic solution. Well, let me tell you, that's exactly what's happening in the book of Romans. At the most somber, sober moment, the back door opens, and in walks a surprise witness. The surprise witness is Jesus Christ. And he walks up to the bench, and he says, may I say something? And, uh, Judge says, yeah, go ahead. He said, you see these two defendants? They're guilty. Oh, thanks a lot. And then he says, the penalty for what they did is death. This is getting worse. And then he says, your honor, I died for what they did. Did you hear that? You're guilty, you're guilty, and he paid. That means the judge can let you go. He can declare you innocent and be just in doing it. That's incredible. That's Romans. That's the gospel. So what happens is the judge picks up his gavel and says, I declare the two guilty people innocent, justified, vindicated. They're free to go. Now let me pause here for just a second and make a point. If you miss everything else I say thus far, please hear this. Justification in the book of Romans means to declare righteous. Write that down. The doctrine of justification in the New Testament means to declare righteous. That's all. The way I have outlined this in the book of Romans is to say, first of all, righteousness is needed, and secondly, righteousness is imputed meaning righteousness is declared on your behalf. Question, does that make me righteous? How many of you think just because you are declared righteous, you are made righteous? Raise your hand. How many of you think that just because you are declared righteous, you are not automatically made righteous? Raise your hand. 
How many of you do not think? <laughs> Hear me. Just because you are declared righteous does not mean that you're automatically going to be righteous. That's why there's more, much more to the book of Romans. That brings us to the third major movement in this book, and I'm going to call it Righteousness Accomplished. It begins in chapter 5 and extends down through chapter 8. In this section, the Apostle Paul demonstrates how righteousness can be accomplished in the life of a justified person. This actually begins in chapter 5, though some say it begins in chapter 6. I think he begins in chapter 5, the first 11 verses, by giving us the benefits of justification which are peace with God and a position before God of standing in grace and the privilege of learning patience through tribulation and the like. He then explains in the latter part of that first paragraph of chapter 5 that we can be saved from wrath by the very life of Christ. The latter part of chapter 5 tells us that justification produced not only righteousness but life as a matter of fact this passage tells us in verse 18 even so through one man's righteous act the three gifts came to all men resulting in justification of life that's the key word at this point in the book of Romans up until chapter 4, I was declared righteous. Now I'm being told in chapter 5 that justification was to life. That I not only received righteousness, the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, I received life when I trusted Jesus Christ. A new life. And that's the point of chapter 5, among other things. Now we plunge into chapter 6, and he begins by asking, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he answers emphatically, Certainly not. And he explains in the first 14 verses of chapter 6 that grace has united me to Jesus Christ. I have been baptized into Jesus Christ. And that means I am alive to God. So we're dealing now with life, the very life of Christ that lives inside me. And as many have pointed out in those first 14 verses of chapter 6, there's a little outline that is very helpful. He says you've got to know that. You've got to know that you were baptized into Christ and that there's life in you. You need to believe it. You need to reckon that it is so. And then you need to present yourself to God in acts of obedience. And as you do, righteousness can be accomplished in you. May I repeat that? It's critical to the understanding of the book of Romans. It is as I yield to the Lord and present myself to Him and obey Him 
that righteousness is accomplished in my life. This is particularly stressed in the next section in chapter 6, verses 14 through 7, 7. Look at chapter 6, verse 16. That says it as clearly as any verse in this section. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave to whom you obey, whether of sin to death of, or of obedience to righteousness? Even though you are a Christian, even though you have been declared righteous, even though you've been given the very life of Jesus Christ, even though you are alive to God, you have a choice. You can now yield yourself to obey sin. And if you do that, it will lead to death. Or you can present yourself and yield yourself to God. And if you do that, it will lead to righteousness practical righteousness can be worked out in your life. This is a very interesting little observation. Up until chapter 4, he has declared that righteousness comes by faith. Now, in chapter 6, he is saying, in verse 16, it is of obedience to righteousness. Righteousness also comes by obedience. You see, when I trust Christ, I am declared righteous. And when I begin to obey him, I actually become righteous in a practical sense. Righteousness is accomplished in my life. That's what it means. But now, he enters into a problem. Because many fail. He explains in the latter part of chapter 7 that the problem is not the law. He says in verse 12, the law is holy, the commandment holy and just and good. The problem's not the law. But in the latter part of chapter 7, he explains the problem is me. It is the flesh that when I try to live by the law, then is when I fail and fall flat on my face. This is a very interesting concept. So you want to live a righteous life. What you do is get some external standard of righteousness and decide you're going to live by it. <laughs> more you try, the harder you fall. You cannot live by law and produce righteousness. It wouldn't work. That's not that there's anything wrong with the law. The law is right. But he explains in this passage that law not only reveals the sin... It arouses the sin. And you tell a little boy not to do something, and that just eggs him on, man. I mean, he just wants to do it that much more, right? So the little boy grows up and he becomes a man, or the little girl grows up and she becomes a woman. And she tells herself, or he tells himself, I'm not going to do something. And that's just about like sentencing yourself to doing it. I am going to lose weight. Did you ever try that routine? I am not going to eat more than 1,000 calories today. Did you ever try to live like that? Can't do it. Very, 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 very difficult. And all the studies demonstrate it. 
Those people who live, lose weight with that kind of a rationale usually gain it all back and then some, right? Some of you look like you're speaking from experience. So he gets down to the end of Romans 7 and he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? I'm here a Christian. Jesus Christ is inside of me. I've been declared righteous. And yet, I'm trying to live by the law and I fail. The solution is in Romans chapter 8 where he explains, put very simply, that the solution to inbred sin is the work of the Spirit of God. It is to live according to the Spirit. And he uses several interesting phrases in Romans 8, like mind the things of the Spirit and walk in the Spirit, which I think captures what the spiritual life is about. It is not until you begin to think like God thinks that you'll have victory. And then choose like God chooses. So it's mining the things of the Spirit and walking in the Spirit. Both of which cannot be done apart from the Word of God. So he tells us in this chapter, you are not obligated to walk after the flesh. You're obligated to walk after the Spirit. And as you do that, you will discover that there is suffering and you will groan for deliverance like creation groans because it is under condemnation as well. But he ends the chapter by saying, be assured there is no separation. Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So, to sum up this third section in the book of Romans. Righteousness is accomplished in my life as I begin to understand that Jesus Christ is in me and I begin to obey him by having the mind of the Spirit and by walking in the Spirit. On the other hand, you ignore the Word of God and the Spirit of God and you try to simply live by the law, you will come to the conclusion of Romans 7, O wretched man that I am. Let me illustrate. Let's go back to court. When we left in scene two, a very dramatic event had just happened. None other than Jesus Christ had just walked into the courtroom and had said to the judge that he had died for all of the offenses of those being put on trial. Well, the two on trial loved what he said. That was good news. And they immediately trusted in his payment. That meant that they were declared innocent and righteous before the judge. Now, that was at the end of scene two. Scene three is he let them go. I mean, they walked right out of the courtroom and scene three is out on the street. Why, he let those people go. After all the wicked crimes they had committed, the judge let them go free. They're out there walking on the street. Does that mean they're not going to commit any crimes anymore? Does that mean they're going to walk the line? Well, 
It all depends. I mean, that's the whole point of Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, isn't it? If they yield to the flesh, they could be right back in trouble again. Matter of fact, he says it's so bad, they could be even enslaved to it if they yield to it over and over again. On the other hand, if they begin to think God's thoughts after him, if they really begin to mind the things of the Spirit, so that, and that Greek word in Romans 8 means that becomes their value system, that becomes their goal and their purpose, that it redirects their whole inner being, and they start walking in the Spirit, then out there on the street, righteousness could be accomplished in them. But if they don't, they're going to be right back in Romans 7. They're going to be right back in bondage. But we're not to the end of Romans yet, are we? We got another problem. At the end of Romans 8, the Apostle Paul said, nothing could separate us from the love of God. Well, now, wait a minute. Hold it. I got a question. Wait a second. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I know that God once had a group of people, and it seems to me that uh, they got separated from him. In the Old Testament, he had a group of people called the Jews, and uh, why well, he came down here in bodily form, and they, they had him crucified. Uh, how can you say nothing can separate us from the love of God? The Jews were God's people in the Old Testament. They got separated from God's love, didn't they? So that takes us to the fourth point in the book of Romans Romans 9, 10, and 11. And I'm going to call this Righteousness Vindicated. This falls into three basic parts. In chapter 9, or at least chapter 9, 1 to 29, he says that God is sovereign and that he had a sovereign elected purpose for Israel and that that purpose will be fulfilled. This is important. That portion of Scripture says if you want to understand the whole problem with the Jew and God in the Old Testament, you must understand that God never promised to save them all. He only promised to fulfill His elected purpose. I want you to look at chapter 9, verse 14. This is critical to understanding chapter 9, and it is critical to understanding the book of Romans. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Right in the middle of this discussion, he right back again goes to the subject of the righteousness of God. Is God unrighteous? No. He only intended to elect some within Israel, and those he intended to elected, he saved. Got a problem. Hold it. Wait a minute. If that's the case, then are you going to tell me that some people don't get saved because they weren't elect? What about all those people that didn't get elect? Well, he discusses that beginning in chapter 9, verse 30, and going through chapter 10. Look at chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, having attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, 
But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness? How did that happen? Or to quote the Apostle Paul in Romans 9.32, why? Here's the answer. Because they did not seek it by faith. Wow. In Romans 9, he says, the problem with Israel was election. At the end of Romans 9, and all through chapter 10, he says, the reason some of them didn't get saved is they didn't believe. It is this passage and others like it in the New Testament that has led me to the conclusion that the Bible teaches on one hand, God sovereign elects people to be saved, and on the other hand, people don't get saved because they don't believe. You say, that sounds like a contradiction to me. Well, it sort of does me too. You say, I can't put those two things together. Neither can I. I just think both of them's true. Matter of fact, I can't explain how there can be one God and three people in the Godhead, three persons in the Godhead. I can't explain how Jesus Christ can be 100% God and 100% man because that's 200%, and yet he's one according to the doctrine of the hypostatic union. I can't understand how the book of Romans could be written by the Holy Spirit and the book of Romans could be written by the Holy Spirit because it seems to me those are two different people, but it's the same book. And, you, know, you know, I don't understand lots of that. I just know it's true. Well, I don't understand how God elects people and yet people can choose to believe. I don't understand it either, but both of them are true. And if there's any passage of Scripture in the whole Bible that explains it in depth and detail, it's Romans 9 and 10. But the final answer to the Jewish situation is given in Romans chapter 11. And in that passage he says, God will ultimately save all Israel. He starts out saying, I'm proof of that. So is the remnant. God has hardened them in the meantime, but ultimately he's going to save them. But now you Gentiles, he says in Romans 11, don't you boast because their unbelief, that is the Jewish unbelief, produced your salvation. And then he asks, what's going to happen when they ultimately, the Gentiles, turn to disbelief and God once again turns to the Jew? At any rate, in this particular portion, he concludes that God is going to ultimately save the Jew, and he ends with a doxology to the wisdom of God. His mercy and his wisdom are past human comprehension. If that's the way God is working in human history, we ought to praise him and marvel at his grace. So, this fourth section in the book of Romans could properly be entitled Righteousness Vindicated. That God's righteousness has been vindicated, meaning his treatment of Israel has been vindicated. Let me illustrate. Let's go back to the courtroom. Remember who the judge was? Who was the judge? God. Well, in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, there is a dramatic turn of events. God is not the judge. God becomes the defendant. Remember the prosecuting attorney? Paul Perry Mason, 
he now becomes the defense attorney. And in this sudden turn of events, Paul defends the righteousness of God. And he concludes in these three chapters, God's righteousness is vindicated. That God will fulfill his purpose. He will not cast away his people Israel. But in terms of individual salvation, they aren't saved because they chose not to believe. God's elected purpose in Israel and in individuals will be fulfilled. But some are not saved because they choose not to believe. So God's righteousness is vindicated. And by the way, that all ought to be plugged into the latter part of Romans 8. What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Has God ever acted unfaithfully? Has God ever acted unlovingly? And the answer is no. And his treatment of Israel is vindication of that. There's a fifth and final section in the book of Romans. It begins in chapter 12, verse 1. And it goes all the way down to 15, verse 13. I'm going to entitle it simply, that righteousness is practiced. The Apostle Paul now moves through various areas of life. And he demonstrates that now this righteous man, who by the work of the Spirit of God has accomplished righteousness, can actually practice righteousness as he obeys the Word of God. First of all, it seems to me that in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, he says righteousness should be practiced in the church. You know those two famous verses, I beseech you now, for brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then he goes on in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, to say, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. And he goes on to explain that each believer in Jesus Christ has been given a spiritual gift. So these first couple of verses in Romans chapter 12 is saying, you ought to give your body to the Lord. You ought to give your mind to the Lord. And you ought to give your service to the Lord. I beseech you, based on God's mercy, that you present your body that you be renewed in your mind, and that you use your spiritual gift for God's service. And since the spiritual gifts are exercised in the church, though the word is not mentioned in these verses, I'm suggesting that all of this works out in the church. In chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, it seems to me he deals with not only your relationship to brethren in the church, but your relationship to your neighbor outside the church. It's in this section he talks a great deal about love. Love hates to hurt, and love longs to help. And he says that ought to be our attitude toward those outside as well as inside. 
So, he's talking about righteousness being practiced in the church and in society. In chapter 13, it says it ought to be practiced toward the government. That's chapter 13, 1 through 14. And in that sense, he says you ought to pay your taxes and you ought to show due respect to government officials. At the end of chapter 13, he talks about motivation. And the motivation is that Jesus Christ is coming back. So he says, wake up, put on Jesus Christ. And the imagery in the latter part of chapter 13 is that it's early in the morning and the alarm clock goes off and you take off your pajamas and put on the work clothes and dress clothes for the day and you go out into life and you do what God said because you know that Jesus Christ is coming back. So you're to practice righteousness toward government. And then finally in chapter 14, 1 through 15, 13, he says you ought to practice righteousness toward individual believers, particularly weak believers, who may believe that something's wrong that really isn't. So he says in those chapters that you ought not judge one another, you ought not cause another brother to stumble. Matter of fact, the strong ought to be concerned about the weak, and frankly, the one plea throughout all those verses is that they ought to receive one another. So to sum up this fifth and final section of the book of Romans, he is saying righteousness is practiced in the church, in society, toward God, and toward other believers. One final illustration of the two men we've walked through Romans. Scene one, they were in the court, guilty before God. Scene two, a surprise visitor. Jesus Christ came in, and because of what he did for them, they were declared righteous when they trusted him. Scene three, they walked out on the street with the possibility of either walking in the spirit or succumbing once again to the flesh. Righteousness would be accomplished as they walked in the spirit. Scene four was an interlude, which we went back to the courtroom for just a moment, and God, of all things, was on trial. But scene five is back out on the street. And in this particular case, one of these justified individuals, if not both of them, are pulling it off because their minds are renewed and they are submitting their bodies to acts of righteousness and they have in their head that they're supposed to be serving. They're actually practicing righteousness. And now they are righteous before God by faith. And now as they practice righteousness, they are righteous before men. They're submissive to the government. They're serving in their church. And oh yes, every once in a while they tend to get in a squabble. And when they're really righteous, they receive each other. They don't judge each other. 
and the strong one takes care not to cause the weak one to stumble. That's righteousness. I think that kind of righteousness is the furthest thing, light years away from self-righteousness and a righteousness that looks down its nose and judges other people. I think that I could argue that the latter part of the book of Romans is demonstrating that that kind of righteousness is love. So, the book of Romans is about righteousness. And the sum is simply this. The righteousness of God is for unrighteous man to practice righteousness by first trusting Jesus Christ and being declared righteous and then by obeying God's word so he can practice righteousness in the power of the Holy Spirit. May I repeat that? The subject of the book of Romans is righteousness. And this book is teaching us that the righteousness of God is for unrighteous man to practice righteousness by first trusting Jesus Christ as his Savior. And then, by practicing practical righteousness as he walks in the Spirit. I began by saying men are unrighteous. Unrighteousness rules and wickedness is rampant in the land. And ultimately you've got to ask, where is God? Is he righteous? Is he able to produce righteousness? Can he do it in an individual? Can he do it in a group? Romans answers those questions with an emphatic yes. Yes, man is unrighteousness. He's as wicked as he can be. Yes, God is righteous. And yes, God, a righteous God, is able to make individual men righteous as they trust Christ and as they grow in Christ. And yes, he can make a group righteous called the church. Is he ever going to do that for all of society? And all of the earth? Romans doesn't go into a lot of detail, but I think it touches on that. When it says, no, God has not cast away his people Israel. But one day they will all Israel will be saved. And though that's all Romans says about it, the rest of the scripture tells us that means righteousness will rule in the earth. Because that means Jesus Christ will have returned and set up a rule of righteousness in this earth. So Romans is teaching us about the righteousness of God. Yes, God is righteous. The way he is producing righteousness in this world is by bringing people to his son and declaring them righteous and then getting his word into them and as they walk in the spirit he produces practical righteousness in their lives. 
That's the way the righteous God is producing righteousness in this world. But let me conclude by um, bringing it all down to just good old simple stuff. Let me be just very simple and practical and clear. Start out saying Romans could be very deep, and it is. It's very abstract, and we've been up in the stratosphere, but God didn't call me to feed giraffes. He called me to feed sheep. So let me put the food down on the lower shelf for a second, all right? I think you can summarize this whole book of Romans down to two things. You want to get life right, you want to do it right, then from the viewpoint of the book of Romans, here it is. It's from faith to faith. At the core of it, you've got to believe God, Romans 1.17. That first faith means you come to Christ and trust Him. That's up to Romans 4. And that second faith means you then keep believing Him. And that second faith involves obeying it. In both cases, you come and say, I'm helpless. I'm a sinner. Help. The first time you do that and trust Christ, God declares you righteous. And then what you discover is you need to do that every day, every time you're faced with a difficult situation. You cram your head full of the Word of God. You saturate your soul with it. You begin to think like God thinks and choose like God chooses. You begin to obey Him. And then you're able to walk in the Spirit. To put it all down real simple. Trust. And obey. As you trust Jesus Christ, you're declared righteous before God. As you trust the Lord and obey Him, you will have practical righteousness before God and man. So let me conclude by the words of one of my favorite hymns. When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He shines or sheds on our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And somebody's going to say, Aha, you quoted a hymn that says that trust and obey is the way to be happy in Jesus, but you spent all this time talking about how to be righteous. You're right, but you're wrong. Because trust and obey, for there's no other way to be righteous in Jesus but to trust and obey. And it's also true that if you trust and obey, there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Because you see, in the final analysis, there's not a whole lot of difference between being right and being happy. So it would behoove you to be right so you can experience the byproduct of being happy. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for the book of Romans. We read it and it seems like it's beyond us, and that's because it is. We live at such a low level. We so rarely think the way you think, that it's hard for us to think like you do in this book. My prayer is that we would not only understand it, but that we would practice it more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.